0: I've been praying for this congregation since it was in the womb, a vision of God given to Pastor Carlos. And so I've been watching, following, sending, even inviting people here, even though I don't live nearby here. And so but I've told people about you all. And so it's been exciting to see what God is doing here again. My name is Dwayne Eslick. I work with the organization called First Priority where we have in Miami-Dade County 60 clubs in all of South Florida, over 200 clubs, and over 1,000 student leaders leading these clubs in their schools. So it's exciting to, to see what God is doing. I do want to give a shout out. My family's going to hate me, but my wife and three of my four kids are right here and like kind of they wave, I don't know, My that's them right there. Make sure you say hi to them. I drag them everywhere I go and they are, I'm the, this Thanksgiving weekend, I'm thankful for them. And uh, there's also a guy there sitting next to him named Glenn. And Glenn is like one of my best friends all in Miami. You need to, it, he's for 30 years gone into the Juvenile Justice Center. There he is in the orange shirt. I, was, I got the light, so it's hard to see. But 30 years he's gone into the Juvenile Detention Centers and preached the gospel faithfully and consistently through it all. And so I thank God for him too. So I don't know if you're thankful this morning, but make sure you're just thinking, Lord, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've done in my heart. Thank you that we're here. It's no coincidence. Thank God that he is working alive. And no matter what you're going through, you're not alone. You're not alone. He is real and his presence is real and he's with you. And it is no coincidence that today you're here in this place. Now, my topic for the today is the power of a church united in focused prayer. The power of a church united united and focused prayer now i'm real passionate and i'm real excited about church planting in chicago we planted two different times a location of a multi-site church and and i just have it inside of me and part of what makes me so passionate about church plants if you're wondering like oh i know it's a church in a theater but like is that like the church foliage like plants what is the church plant? no it's like you're planting this church in this community and church plants are special and dear to me because I actually accepted the Lord in a church plant. A storefront church in Hialeah only had about 40 people. The church did, that church didn't even make it. They relocated to Pembroke Pines and, and the pastor relocated to another place and planted a church in South Carolina. But that church existed to help me discover the reality of Jesus and then go on the rest of my life to display the reality of Jesus wherever I went. And it was in a church plant with just 40 people Say, how much of a difference did that church plant make? Well, at that time, I was in seventh grade. I had already been arrested twice for stealing. I was living in a single-parent home, a one-bedroom apartment in Hialeah with me, my mom, and my brother. And we were literally probably... I mean, we were like, you know, you have poor and then you have like dirt poor. I knew what it was like to be going like Wednesday, waiting for Friday for my mom to get paid and not knowing what we were going to eat for two days. I mean, we, we grew up, I grew up in Hialeah, and my mom was making minimum wage as a waitress and, and surviving, trying to be a single mom in Miami and not having any other family here. And so when I came to Christ, God knew where I needed to come to Christ at. It was at a church plant. Because when we walked into that place, the people were super friendly. They were loving. They were caring. And then uh, after the service, there wasn't a huge crowd. So somebody took us aside, opened the Bible, shared the gospel with me. And on that day, December 3rd, the month of December, December 3rd, 1989, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And I was, amen? I was radically changed. I mean, they didn't know I was a little thief from Hialeah. I mean, literally, I would go and steal like almost. Three, four, five times a week, I was considering myself, like, pretty good at stealing, you know. I literally went to Westland Mall after I accepted Christ. And I went to what back then was a toy store called KB Toy Stores. I went into KB Toy Stores, and I was going to steal a video game. And I confused the lady at the counter. She thought I had two video games, but I had three. She was working busy. I took one of those video games, and I rode off on my bicycle from Westland Mall. And for the first time in my life, this conviction came over me. Like, I was like, what am I doing? Like I had stolen a thousand times and never once felt guilty about it. But I accepted Jesus, and the first time I went to steal after that, it was like something inside of me was like taking away the the fun and adrenaline rush, and I was feeling miserable. I'm like, man, I can't do this no more. I don't like this. And God, he began to change me from the inside out. And if he could change me at age 13, the power of the gospel, but it was interesting that I got saved at a church plant because they didn't have a youth group, so they stuck me with the kids. And I was with, like, fourth graders, even though I was in seventh grade. And they, I started learning the Bible, and it was, like, easy for me to understand because obviously it was, like, fourth graders. And so, but then something special happened. The youth leader, who was, like, doing fourth to eighth grade now, he basically invited my mom, myself, and my brother over to his house every Tuesday night for dinner. And we would eat around the kitchen table, I mean around a dining room table. It was the first time in my life we ate around a dining room table. I thought you ate in front of TV. I mean, I've seen people on TV had to eat at a table, but we always ate on our couch in front of a television. And here we were like sit around a table. And he they not only taught me. The reality of Jesus. They displayed the reality of Jesus to me and showed me this is how you live out what you're learning on Sunday and on Wednesday. And so they had me over, and I grew because there was people pouring into me, caring for me, and I was being mentored and discipled. And so I thank God. You're here in a right moment. You're in a church plant. You're here because this community needs gospel preaching, spirit disciple making churches and it's desperate for that kind of church and God has brought you here and brought you together to bring this reality to this community now here's the key you're getting you're a year in you're doing great you're growing your people are coming people are meeting Jesus and you're growing in your faith but it's real easy to kind of put it into cruise control it's real easy to say, hey, I like this pace, I like this gear. I don't want to go to fifth gear if you ever drove a manual. I don't wanna, it's real easy to just like go into cruise control as a church. In fact, what's interesting is we're look, we just read a passage from the, the letter from James. The letter from James was actually James, the brother of Jesus, not James, the disciple of Jesus. He, James, the disciple of Jesus, he got killed by the sword. But James, the brother of Jesus, now is becoming a leader of the church in Jerusalem. When you look at some uh, uh, like kind of history of that letter, some believe it was written as early as 48 A.D. That's less than 20 years of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So within 15 to 20 years, this church that was a church plant and the disciples that had planted churches all over the, the land as God began to spread them out, these churches Began to have a problem. I mean, they had some major problems. That's why you kind of one of the reasons why I trust the Bible is it's not afraid of people's blemishes. Like from the beginning, the church had problems. And so here, he, when you're reading James, man, there was one one, and I'm like, I'm embarrassed. Like, if this is my church, I'd be like, God, like, this is embarrassing. Like people would come to church, and they would get the wealthiest people, and they would sit them in the nicest seats, and they would say, oh, you're poor. You know what? You can sit in the back. Make sure nobody smells you over there. Sit in the back. Don't, don't let anybody see you. They were showing partiality. I mean, that was a problem. I mean, they had a problem with pride. Maybe they were slipping into some prosperity teaching or something because they were like, hey, man, I'm going to go do some of my business. I'm going to go to this town make some money. I'm going to do A, B, and C. And they were like arrogant about how they were going to make their money. I mean, this is like 15 years in. And, and he said, hey, you better say, if the Lord allows me to do this, if the Lord wills. I mean, they were having problems there. When you look at the book of James, you look at like, man, even that's some of their language. Like they would show up at church on Sunday and be like, praise you, Father God. Worshiping you. Praising. And then from the same mouth, they would bring cursing on Monday. A little bit of hypocrisy keep creeping in pretty quick. I mean, they had some problems. But at the beginning and at the end of James, James says like, hey here, here's part of the solution. In James 1, he says, if anybody lacks wisdom, let them ask God, and God will give wisdom. It's prayer. And then he closes it out, almost like, man, I mean, James, he would have done well in like a good African-American church because, man, he ends on a climax. I mean, he's going through his letter. He starts out with prayer. He starts touching on all these issues. He's talking about, hey, you need to live out your faith and not just talk about your faith, but you need to live it out. And he gets down to the end of James. And he says, here's the solution to the problem, or at least where the solution starts. If you're in a weak, anemic church, you need to learn how to pray. If you have problems in your church, you need to start praying for each other. If if you guys are like getting a little lukewarm and compromising and having some worldly ideas about wealth and how you treat people, you need to start praying for each other. And he finishes with this powerful paragraph, one of my most favorite in the whole Bible, on prayer. He says, hey, is anybody sick? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing praises, which is like a form of prayer. It's worship. You're talking to God. You're singing to him. He's like, if anybody's like really sick, call the elders. Have them anoint them with oil. And pray for that sick person. He's like, hey, prayer should be part of the fabric of your church community. Whether it's like good times or bad times. You sing your prayers or you cry out to God in your prayers. But you need to be talking to God depending on him in prayer. You see, in America, I mean, maybe it's our money. Maybe it's our intelligence. We think, hey, we got this figured out. We know how to do church in America. Like, we could grow a church. We could send postcards. We could market it on social media. We could have the best light show. We could make it a little entertaining. I mean, we know how to do church in America. We're good at this stuff. And you get all this emphasis and all this training on how to do church. But we're still weak, we're still anemic. It's almost like we're powerless, it's like the church in America is sick, hurting, getting weak, barely making it. And if you look at the real, real root of the issue, there's a little bit of arrogance. There's a little bit of pride about what we could do, and there's a little bit of lack of prayer, maybe not a little bit, there's a lot of lack of prayer, like what church really prays? It's almost sad to think about. You go to church, Jesus said, My house, when he was talking about the temple, he said it would be called a house of prayer. If we as a people, not a location, not a building, but we as a people are the temple of God. Should there not be prayer amongst us regularly? Should we as a people not be a people or a house of prayer? Maybe, most likely, the weakness. Of the church in our country is our dependence on ourself manifested and demonstrated by our lack of prayer. And if anything were to turn in this country with the church, we need to learn to pray together. Not just pray alone, but pray together. Corporately, we need to pray privately. Pastor Carlos shared a great message. You go on YouTube and look it up where he preached in Matthew on the passage of the Lord's prayer. And there is this importance, like our private prayer should be more than our public prayer. But just because our private prayer should be more than our public prayer, that doesn't mean we don't have no public prayer. And so if we are to be powerful as a church, it will not be if we're prayerless. And so you go through James. He starts out, and he's talking about, I think, physical sickness. Like, I don't know about you, but every time I go to the hospital and I've been sick enough to make it to the hospital, I mean, it takes a lot for me to get to the hospital. Like, I'm like that guy. is like That's the last place I want to check myself into. But when I finally get into so much pain, I had to have my gallbladder removed. It took like three times. They went, didn't find what was wrong with me, and finally they said, hey, you got gallstones, and this is the problem. But I was in serious pain before I went to that emergency room. Like, I don't like to go to the hospital. But I've never gone to the hospital and not told everybody I know, could you please pray for me? (laughs) I've never had sickness that was severe where I didn't say, God, could somebody pray for me? And I want my pastors to pray for me. I want the church leaders. I want the people closest to God to pray for me. And so in this passage, he says, if somebody's sick, you need to get the church leaders to pray for you. He talks about oil, and there's different ideas. Obviously, oil could be symbolic of the Holy Spirit. It could have been like they med- had medicinal purposes. It could have been just a way of honoring God, a lot of different explanations culturally of what that meant. But the point isn't the oil. The point is your church leaders should be praying for you when you're sick. should pray for the worship leader. Pray. And in the passage, he gives us three key elements to having a powerful community of prayer. Number one is your prayer Needs to be in community. He says, pray for each other. Turn to your neighbor and say, pray for each other. Turn to your other neighbor on the other side and say, hey, and if they're far, you can shout it to them, pray for each other. That's like what? Pray for each other. Four words. Not complicated. Then why don't we pray for each other more? We need to pray for each other. Should be like, I'm wearing a shirt, I don't know, I get this from work, I don't know what kind of material it is, but it feels good. It's like a nice material, it's nice, it's comfortable, you know. Especially in this Florida heat, like it just allows me to breathe, I don't get too sweaty in this shirt, I like it. And you would say, hey, what is that shirt made out of, yeah, I don't know, cotton, polyester, some blend. When you look at your church fabric, like what is Reality Church Miami made out of? It needs to be a fabric of prayer interwoven into everything you do. You have a Sunday service. They meet in a huddle, all the volunteers, and before they leave that huddle, they pray. You have a small group Bible study. Make sure you don't use all the time in fellowship and all the time in teaching. Save some time for prayer. Let it be interwoven in everything you do. You talk to someone on the phone and you talk about all your problems for 30 minutes. Make sure you at least take five minutes to pray about the problem. It should be interwoven. In our con- Sometimes kind. Sometimes, like, you talk on Sunday, you're like, hey, how you doing? Oh, it's been a rough week. So like, I'll pray for you. And then you just kind of go, no, stop right there in the hallway and pray for that person. Say, hey, we got two minutes. Come here, let's hold hands. Lord, I just want to pray for this problem, this bringing this brother or sister down. I pray you would encourage them. To pray right in the hallway. Let it be in the fabric of who you are. You're on a phone call. You call someone up. This is what I, I learned back before voicemail and cell phones. As I was working with youth at a church, and I would go through the list of names, and I would call people, and you would get the old-fashioned tape recorder voicemail. Oh, man, listen through the whole long thing in Spanish and in English. You know, I had to listen to translation. You finally get to the beep. It's like I waited this long for to call them like, man, I'm just going to pray for them. So I would pray over their voicemail, like the whole house is going to get to hear this prayer. So Lord, I pray (laughs) for this family. I pray for this teenager. I pray for this mom. I pray for this home. And I would pray over their voicemail. And people would love it. Like, I think like, wow, this is the greatest invention. I don't know why more people haven't thought about this. You're waiting on the voicemail. Why not just take some of that two-minute, 90-second voicemail and pray for them. And so I've done that on Cell phone voicemails, and now I love my iPhone, and if you got an iPhone number, I could just voice memo you a prayer. Because like, hey, I'm thinking about you. You don't know I'm thinking about you. I could just send you a text and say, hey, I'm thinking about you and praying for you. I was like, I'm just going to pray for them so they can hear my prayers for them. And I'll hit that voice memo, and I'll just pray for leaders, pastors. I'll pray for people, whoever God brings to my heart. If they got an iPhone, they're getting a voice memo. And if I really love you and you got an Android, I'll look you up on WhatsApp and send you a voice memo there. But it's like part of, I believe that when I pray, it can move mountains. And so that affects my confidence in my, myself, or not in my prayers, but in my God who moves mountains. And so when I pray, I'm believing in faith for that person because there is a spiritual war and the enemy's trying to discourage them, and we need to pray for each other. It should be ingrained in all that we do. Someone's leading a ministry, pray for that ministry leader. Somebody's volunteer, pray for that volunteer. Somebody is out in the world working 40 hours a week around the world and and, and around people that are lost. Pray for that worker that they would be a light displaying the reality of Jesus in their workplace. There's kids in school, and if they're in a public school, they need your prayer. Pray for them and let them know you're praying for them. And pray for them on Sunday in the hallway and then send them a note that you're praying for them during the week. Because they'll know somebody's got their back in prayer. Pray for each other. So if you want a powerful prayer life, it won't be solo. It will be in community. And that's how I learned how to pray. When I went to that church, Miami Lakes Baptist Church at the time... The senior pastor was our common friend, Brian Pippen. The youth pastor was Paul Humphreys. He picked me up from American High School on Tuesdays. Me and my friend Alex, we would get in the car. He would drive us to the church, and we would go to the front of the church building. We would get down on our knees. Man, that pastor could pray a long time. (laughs) I was bored out of my mind. But after, like, a couple of months of this, something was happening inside of me because I was learning how to pray. I was like, if nobody hears anybody else pray, then how do you ever learn how to pray? Even the disciples had Jesus teach them how to pray on the Sermon out on the Mount in front of a huge crowd of people. But it was in the book of Luke when Jesus was having his personal prayer time. And he walked out of that personal prayer time, probably either in a small group or on his own. And his disciples said, Lord, will you teach us to pray? And the same thing he taught them on the mountain. He taught them face-to-face in a small group. And he said, this is how you pray. Jesus modeled prayer and they were able to see him living it out. And we need people in here that if you love to pray, call somebody up on the phone, say how you're doing, how's your week, let me pray for you so they can hear you pray and learn from you how to pray. So pray for each other. Number two, it says confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. Now, Obviously, this is, we could preach a whole sermon, write a whole chapter of a book on what that means. But two things. Sometimes you may be sick because there's sin in your life. Sometimes. You don't have to walk around like, oh, every time I get sick, God's punished me. No, we don't have a God like that. He's not trying to kick us. He's not trying to stomp on us. Our God loves us. He's pursuing you. He cares about you. And he, like a heavenly father, loves you and wants you to be doing your best for his glory. He isn't out to like just, oh, I want to punish you with sickness and afflict you. And that's not our God. But God does love to get our attention. And when we're proud, cocky, and think we're all that, hey, it only takes me like a few hours of being sick in bed to think, God, I need you, Lord. I don't know why I'm sick right now. But if there's any sin in my life, whatever's holding me back from getting well, Lord, I want to get rid of that. And it's interesting because with confession... Like you don't need to come up here in front of the whole auditorium and start confessing my sins to everyone. But hopefully you have a close circle of people where you could be real, where you could be vulnerable, and where you can share what you're struggling with. Because it's in that vulnerability, in that close, intimate prayer circle where you have somebody who can look you in the eyes. I have Pastor Miguel from a church called CIU. He looks me in the eyes and says, Dwayne, how you doing with your eyes? Been listening after people. I've been how you been looking, how you been dealing with this, but how you been doing? He'll look at me and I'm vulnerable, countable, and there's power because it gives me victory to have him pray for me. If I've had a bad week, lose my temper, anger, whatever. So Pastor Miguel, man, I lost it with the kids this week. You taught, man. I just need need to tell somebody because I'm I'm embarrassed about what I did, how I just yelled and lost my cool. And then in that, there's a power when he prays for me. There's an accountability that, hey, I'm not just going to just be secret. People are going to know how to pray for me specifically. And so you need to confess. You need an inner circle. You need people. And it may take you a year. It may take you two years. But you may need to meet with a lot of coffees to get to that level of trust where you could be vulnerable. But if you want a powerful prayer life, you can't have sin obstacles in your life where you're walking in defeat. If I mistreat my wife, God specifically says he's not going to listen to my prayers. So my relationship horizontal with my wife affects my prayer life vertical with my God. And so if you're being defeated and there's a sin defeating you, you need to get that out because God doesn't want you to live in defeat. He wants you to walk in victory. And so sometimes what you conceal will not heal. If you have a hidden wound that you're hiding and you don't expose it, get it cleaned up and put some like neosporin or some patches on, what you're hiding, it won't heal. But when you reveal it, it gives God a chance to work in that place in your life. Now, I'm not saying come in front of an auditorium. I'm not even saying in your small group. I'm not even saying you need to tell every child, you know, you don't need to say, hey, I need to confess my sins. I've been lusting after you or whatever. You know, that's not what I'm saying. That's not how you confess. That's not God's point and purpose in you having a confession and an accountable relationship. The point is, is you have somebody who's like, hey, you're in the trenches together, side by side, and we're in this battle together, and we're walking in victory and helping each other, and, and we could be vulnerable together. If you want a powerful prayer life, you need that vulnerability, place of accountability, transparency, and you will see the power in your prayer life go to another level because That requires humility, and God just loves to work in humble people. He gives grace to the humble, and so we need to have an element of community that's corporate. It's praying for each other and confession where we confess our sins to somebody, not in a priestly way. We have one mediator. It's not like they're going to forgive me, but no, it brings healing. It brings power to have somebody praying for those specific areas that you struggle with. Finally, a key element is compassion. Like when you talk about prayer in the Bible, I mean, there is like no more favorite person to me than Elijah. And that's who James brings up in this passage. He says the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. James is like talking about a practical righteousness. You can be positionally righteous because God says you are righteous. That's what God says it, that's your, that's your position before God. When he sees you, you are right with him because of what Jesus did on the cross. But what Jesus did on the cross was meant to change your life. And James talks about the faith that produces works. A true, authentic faith will change the direction of your life over time. Maybe a long time, maybe a short time is different. And it's a process, but James does emphasize a practical side of righteousness, where it's not my good deeds, not me mustering up strength. No, I was like, I'm weak, I'm humble. God, I need you. I struggle with idolatry. I, 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 I. I'm like James chapter four. I need to draw near to you, God. I stray. It's like God, help me practically walk close to you and let your righteousness be inside of me, coming out on display for others to see the prayer of a practically righteous person who's t- not treating their wife or their spouse well who's who's loving their family who doesn't have hidden sin hindering their prayer life it is powerful like elijah powerful and i mean moses i mean that guy was that guy could pray i mean like they're in a war and he's like Man, he raises his hands. There's like victory in the valley. His arms get tired. And it's like, man, the war, they start getting defeated. It's like God saying, hey, I'm showing you when you depend on me, you will have victory. He's like, couldn't do it alone. So two people came and they set him on a rock. They raised his hands. Like, man, that's a powerful picture of prayer, Moses. But, man, when I think about my favorite prayer warrior in the Bible, it's Elijah. Because Elijah, he was just an ordinary guy like me. I mean, Elijah... He wanted to die and God just to take him home already. He was like sick of life and he was like, God, I'm just a failure. I'm no better than my ancestors. Just take me home. Kill me, God. That was one of his prayers. I mean, you don't get real and authentic like that. I mean, this guy, he got depressed. He was bummed when God didn't answer his prayers the way he thought. And so James goes to Elijah, and he introduces a prayer of a righteous person, it's powerful effective. and he says Elijah was an ordinary guy just like us, but he prayed that it wouldn't rain, and for over three years, it didn't rain. And then God said, hey, I'm going to send rain, so I want you to do A, B, and C. I want you to get all the prophets of this false god together, and I want you guys to go up on a mountain, and I'm going to demonstrate my power. So Elijah's up there, and these other guys were praying, and so the power isn't in prayer because you could pray. I mean, these guys were radical prayer warriors, but they were praying to the wrong God. And so they're up there, and it says they even start cutting themselves. They're like swords, spears, like let me get some blood on the altar. Maybe then our God will hear us. They were chanting, yelling, screaming for all day long. But their power, prayer was powerless because the person they were praying to wasn't real and didn't have power. See, it's not your faith that has power. It's not your prayers that have power. God is powerful. And prayer is how we talk to him and get aligned with him and get on his page and and are listening. And it's not just like me telling what God wants to do. It's like, God, you tell me what to do, Lord. And in that communication, you become an agent serving God in the world, in your workplace, in your classroom, in your community, serving God. And so it's not prayer that's powerful. God is powerful. And prayer gets us in tune with what God is wanting to do. It's amazing because God tells Elijah, I'm gonna send rain. So when Elijah is praying, he has a showdown. Fire comes, consumes this altar. And then he tells everybody, Hey, God's gonna send rain. Get to your houses, get off this mountain. There's gonna be a storm. There's gonna be lightning. I was like, I don't wanna be on a mountain when a thunderstorm's coming. I happened to me in Tennessee, it's pretty scary. It's like the lightning's even closer to you. He's like, Hey, there's a storm coming. He's like, tells the king. Get in your chariot. Get going home. And so he goes up onto the top, top peak of the mountain. He has a servant with him, his helper. He gets on his knees and he starts praying. He goes to the servant. Hey, go look on the edge of the cliff. Look out and see if you see any clouds. Servant runs, comes back. No clouds. So Elijah prays some more. Oh, God, please send rain. You said you're going to send rain. I'm just praying your promise. He tells the servant, go look again. Goes, looks. No clouds. It hadn't been raining for three years. Praise again, third time. Go look. Comes back. No clouds. No sign of rain. Praise again. Sends them out. No rain. Praise again. Five times. Praise again. Six times. The seventh time, Elijah's persevering in prayer. He's like, Lord. I'm counting on you. You just sent fire. Could you at least send rain? Because the people's animals are dying. The people are starving. The crops aren't prospering. There's no food on the table. We need rain, God. If you Please take this drought off of us. You got the nation's attention, Lord. Please send the rain. And he sends a servant. He goes and he looks. the servant comes back and he says, I saw a cloud the size of a fish. That's all he needed. A little tiny cloud off in the distance. He's like, let's go, we got to run. So he runs a marathon, literally, I think it's like 50 kilometers. He runs to Jezreel Valley off the mount. He gets there and it starts pouring, soaking, drenched, dark, black cloud rain. And then, in all that, the next chapter, 1 Kings 19, Elijah's next prayer was like, Lord, just take me home. I was expecting you to bring revival to our nation And the king still hates you and his wife still wants to kill me. I thought you were going to change the politicians, Lord. And you know what? Nothing's changed. Just I'm done, Lord. Take me home. See, God didn't answer Elijah's prayer the way he expected was working. So God takes him away. He's like, you need some one-on-one time with me. I'm taking you far away. You're going to Mount Horeb, down in the desert, far away from everybody and you're going to meet with me in a cave. He travels 40 days. He gets in that cave and then the God like sends, you know, it's a famous story. You can read it in 1 Kings 19. He's like sending thunder, earthquakes, fire. And he's like, God wasn't in any of those. Then there's a still, small breeze. And in a gentle voice, God speaks to Elijah's heart like, what are you doing here? He's like, I've been zealous for you, God, and it hasn't made a difference. God told him after the second time Elijah said that, I've been zealous for you, God, and it hasn't made a difference. He says, man, guess what? There's a guy who's a hard worker. You're going to go make him your successor. His name is Elisha. He's like, there's some other kings, I need you to go pour some oil on their head. Forget about this guy, Ahab, go anoint this other king. And even in a foreign country, the Aramites, go anoint them a king. I'm going to use this guy. I'm not answering your prayers the way I thought. You you thought I was going to bring revival when fire came down. Even fire coming down didn't scare nobody to follow him. Jezebel still wanted to kill him. He's like, hey, wait. Don't, stop looking at all that. Look at me. Here's what I'm going to do. And he's like, you know what? God ministered to him in that cave. And he said, there's 7,000 people in this country who have not bowed their knee to Baal. You think you're the only one? Guess what, Elijah? You're wrong. You're not the only one. I've been working even though you couldn't see it. I've been moving even though you've been going through a drought. I've been answering your prayers for this country, but it was not going to be from the top down, from the king to the people. It was going to be from the people, and it was going to come up because I'm doing something. i got 7,000 in this nation that haven't bowed their knees and haven't sacrificed to this false god, Baal. You see, Elijah, even though he was praying wrong, he was zealous. He got upset. He had emotion in his prayer. He was like, hey, God, I've been praying for this and you're not answering it. And he didn't give up. He kept praying, kept seeking God until God gave him insight and changed his heart. See, prayer isn't just about changing things. It's about changing us. It's not just about changing our city. It's about changing the church. And if we don't have compassion, if we don't have zeal, then guess what? You're not going to have power. It says in some translations, the fervent prayer. And then it says specifically, when it uses the illustration of Elijah, it says, Elijah prayed earnestly. Verse 17 of chapter 5, Elijah prayed earnestly. When was the last time you prayed earnestly? When was somebody fallen away from God that it didn't drive you to your knees to pray for that person who's walked away from their faith? When was the last time you prayed for a marriage as if it was your marriage? When was it the last time you cared about your friend's kid who's struggling in their faith and prayed for them like they were your own kid? When was the last time that you prayed earnestly for the lost? You see, the last two verses of chapter 5 that James finishes his letter with, he says, if anyone turns a sinner back to God, he's saving them from a multitude of sins and from death. It's like, hey. When you have somebody you know going, like I, I've had friends relapse into drugs. And in the relapse, because it's been 10 years since they've done drugs, it's like the first couple of weeks of two extreme highs and they overdose. It's like you literally may be saving somebody's life who's walking away from God. And it's not like in a sense of like, hey, oh, God's gonna come. No, they're gonna end up doing some crazy stuff that. Could kill themselves. But when you wrestle in prayer, you see, that last two verses of James, there's no chapter division in the Bible. There were no verse divisions. We had that as a tool to help us find those verses. And so when he was writing the letter, he goes straight from Elijah to backslidden Christians or backslidden Jews or people that had walked away from God and were living in a sinful lifestyle. People that were far from God. You see, prayer needs to be for people and for their hearts to be turned back to God. Jesus went up on the mountain and he said, hey, you three disciples, I think it was James, Peter, and John. He's like, you come and it's called the transfiguration where like God speaks from heaven, Jesus is shining a light. And when he goes down from that mountain, the other nine disciples were trying to cast a demon out of some kid. And then, like, it wasn't working. I mean, they had cast demons out in villages and towns and Jesus had sent them out before and it worked, but this time it didn't work. And so when Jesus comes down from this mountaintop meeting with God and glory and he comes back down and there's, like, commotion, there's a demon kid, like, manifesting and all kinds of stuff, and like, Jesus, uh, like, hey, it's not working, can you do something? And Jesus prays for the kid and he's delivered from this demonic oppression and then Later, the disciples say, hey, Jesus like, why why didn't it work this time? He's like, all right, team huddle, team huddle. Guys, this kind only comes out by prayer. If you face a demon that big or that powerful or that strong with that strong of a stronghold, this kind only comes out by prayer. You plant a church in Miami, this kind of church that you're trying to be, it will only happen. You have dreams that are so big, this kind of dream is only reached by prayer. You not only want to discover Jesus' reality, but you want to display Jesus' reality. You start putting Jesus on display, guess what? There's a spiritual battle. This kind only happens by prayer. You know, there is a spiritual war in Ephesians chapter 6, and after he says put on your armor, you know what you do? You pray. And you know what Paul says? Hey, when you get your armor on and you start praying, don't, don't forget to pray about me. Pray for me. I need your prayers too. If Paul, the apostle, who planted churches in city after city after city, still needed prayer when he wrote the Ephesians, how much more do the church leaders here need your prayer? This kind of church planner will only be successful. When a church prays for them, they asked Charles Spurgeon, he's called the Prince of Preachers from the 1800s. He preached to thousands. I think the auditorium held like 5,000. And people would come and visit and want to see this tabernacle that they called it. And he was like, and after he was showing the auditorium, he's like, hey, I got to show you something else. Let's go downstairs. And he took them to it. he's like, this we call the boiler room. And when he went in the boiler room, there was 100 people praying. He says, you want to know why God is working through this church? My people pray for me. As their pastor, pray for the church leaders. It's almost like any kind of war, they have a target. The enemy isn't dumb. He's going to target the leaders so he could discourage the whole flock. Pray for each other. Pray for people that have fallen away, like your circle of influence. Pray for your church leaders. And then with laser focus, pray for something where you know if God did it, it was God. Pray for your community outreach. Pray for the South Miami, for Palmetto, for Pinecrest, for Coral Gables. Pray for Kendall. Pray with laser focus. Howard Hendricks says, where prayer focuses, power falls. And when you begin to focus in and you pray for specific things with like a laser focus, you'll see God work in a special way. And you know what? I believe God wants to show a church that he can answer prayer. I seen it when I was a youth pastor. We would want to teach. I was like, I'm not going to be a youth pastor and one day stand before God. And he says, hey, Dwayne, why didn't you teach my youth to pray? So I was like, hey, in the summer, we don't have money to go away to camp. We were an inner city youth group. was like, hey, we have camp at the youth warehouse. So we would meet at the youth warehouse Monday through Friday. And I said, we called a spiritual boot camp. And I was like, we're going to learn to pray. So we would go on prayer walks. And just two blocks from our youth warehouse, there was an adult bookstore that had been on that corner for over 40 years. In the community and the neighborhood. So we're like, man, I had all the youth go We laid hands on that building and we prayed, Lord, remove this thing from our community. causes people to stumble, hurts people's lives. We prayed, remove this place. So we went the whole next year, the next summer. It's time to prayer walk again. I took the kids out. We went to pray over that building again. I said, hey, there was like 30 youth. We went and we laid hands on that building. We're like, Lord, turn it into a Christian bookstore. Little did we know Amazon was coming and there ain't going to be no more bookstores. (laughs) But we're praying just in faith for big things. We're praying that thing to be removed. And... The owner of the store came out with the broom. What are you doing? Get off my property. (laughs) So we all went to the sidewalk. This was like the busiest street. It's called Western Avenue. It's one of the longest city streets in all America. It's a huge four-lane, busy, busy street. And we're on the sidewalk. All 30 of us, all right, extend your hands. He can't kick us off the sidewalk. We're going to pray this place down. So we started praying over that adult bookstore. And we prayed and we kept praying around the neighborhood. That whole next year nothing happened i was driving in my car and i'm like lord every time i pray for this place to be torn down it's like god i don't know maybe it's not your will i'm done praying for this place three years of praying it's like lord i was praying you just show the youth that you answer prayer two weeks after i said god i'm done praying for this place because i was so tired of praying for it that place was knocked down to the ground and turned into a parking lot with landscaping that looked beautiful I mean, there's a lot of empty lots in Chicago, but this one had beautiful landscaping. I was like, that's a sign from God. It could have just been knocked down, but they put landscaping and some parking spaces. This is, this is a miracle. God wants you to laser focus in on prayer, just like Elijah praying in faith for rain. It's like God, as a church, let's pray for Kenwood K-8. through That there would be a gospel club in this school, that God would raise up a student leader, that God would provide a teacher sponsor, that he would give us favor with the principal, and this student would have freedom to be leading this club with middle schoolers. And then down the road, let's pray, God, open the door for the the pre-middle schoolers, that there would be a club, that that there would be a church sponsoring this school with laser focus, and that there would be teens and pre-teens coming to Christ because of laser focus. I gave you six C's. If it was a report card, it would be an average report card. Because Elijah was an average guy. He probably had an average report card. You need to pray with three elements. The three elements was in community with each other. You need to pray confessing sins, having a clean heart, fresh counts with the Lord. You need to pray with compassion. And then once you have those elements, there's three laser-focused areas that you could pray for as a church. Pray for your circle of influences. If you know somebody that's walked away from God, between now and Christmas, pray for them every day. Take Advent and say, God, we're praying for these people that are far from you. Whether they followed the Lord and walked away or they've never known God, you pray for them with laser focus. Pray for your circle of influence. Pray until Easter. Keep praying. I've been praying for people for 20 years and I've seen God answer those prayers. Where like sometimes I already witnessed to to this person Lord 10 times. Lord, I need you to send somebody else because they're not hearing it from me. And then I'll talk to a person. Like, somebody at work, they were talking to me about God today. And I was like, Lord, you're answering these prayers. Lord, you're sending messengers. You pray with laser focus as long as it takes for people that are in your circle of influence. You pray for your church leaders. If Paul needed prayer, Pastor Carlos, Pastor Gus, Panos, your leaders, the leaders of the state, the children's ministry, the, the worship leaders, they need your Prayers. And pray for your community outreach. And as a church, laser focus in on one school and see what God could do at Kenwood K-8. Heavenly Father, as we begin to even pray for each other and apply this message, would you lead us, Lord, to be a community that is interwoven in every fabric of all that we do, a dependence on you and prayer. May it be our secret weapon in this city. Not our genius, not our ideals, not our, our methods. We think the problem in America is methods. But, Lord, our problem is our pride and our dependence on ourselves. May you resurge prayer in local congregations like has never been seen before in the city of Miami. We pray this in Jesus' name.